0: I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. right I'm your host Kurt Sandvig and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac let's talk about nuclear sites and UFOs but first as always shout outs this first batch of shout outs comes from Stitch shout outs to Sledge, Zoe, Smokey, Toby, Roxy, Angela and Lion, Maya and Cece. Alrighty now on to the human part of the shout outs. First up we got shout outs to Angie, Brody, Aaron, Lionel, Madison, Manning, Matthew and Megan, Thank you all so, so much. And we have shout outs to Aaron, Aaron, Amber, Amy, Angie, Autumn, Brody, Seth, Carolyn, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, David, Dill, Edgar, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harley, Harvey, Heidi, J-Mark, Jade, Jamie, Jason, Jason, Jeff, Jenny, Jennifer, Jim, Joe, John, Joshua, Joshua, Juliana, Kelsey, Kenny, Kira, Kyle, Lash, Laura, Laura Rutho, Lauren, hi Lauren. Lawrence, Lily, Lionel, Madison, Maggie, hey Maggie, Michaela, Manning, Martin, Matt, Matt, Matthew, Megan, Megan, Nanashi, Nick, Nick, Pablo, Reed, Rosa, Sage, Sarah, Sarah, Shelly, Suzanne, Tosh, Jamie, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Travis, Trey, Troy, Veronica, and Vincente. Again, if you want to be like the cool kids, head on over to patreon.com paranormalalmanac paranormal almanac. You get extra episodes and more fun stuff. I sent out the third batch of stickers to all of you guys, so hopefully all the patrons now will have stickers and uh, coins waiting for them in the mail. If you didn't get them yet, please let me know. I'll send out a fourth batch. And if I don't have your address, patrons, make sure you get it to me. Okay, next up, let's go over to Paranormal News. Paranormal News. Ladies and gentlemen, this is... Paranormal news. The first story in Paranormal News, a river monster was spotted in Germany. A man walking along the Elbe River in Germany was astounded when he spotted a large snake-like creature emerge from the water. Witness Torsten Kaj, Koj, I don't know, managed to snap a photo of the beast which he described to the German media outlet as being, quote, several meters long. And I gotta say, from the looks of this photo, it really does look several meters long, but it also kind of looks like a whale tail. So, I don't know if whales go in there, but something's going on. Now, according to him, the creature swam along the river a short time before disappearing beneath the surface of the water. While the unidentified aquatic anomaly was almost certainly not an ancient dinosaur that somehow survived until modern times, what it is, is a mystery. Now they think it could be an eel, a snake, a large fish, or possibly just some debris briefly bobbed to the surface of the water as it floated down the river. It's really neat to look at. Again, I think it looks more like a whale, maybe some debris, but I have no idea what it is up next is an update of sorts from last week's paranormal news more than one million people agree to storm area 51 but the air force is definitely telling them stay home the u.s air force is aware of the facebook event encouraging people to storm area 51 the nevada test site and training range provides flexible realistic and multi-dimensional battle space to test and develop tactics as well as conduct advanced training in support of the u.s national interest Any attempt to illegally access the area is highly discouraged. Now, there's also been a couple of pop-ups very similar to Let's Storm Area 51. One of them, Let's Storm Loch Ness and Catch Nessie, but they call her a monster, so leave her alone. And the other one is Let's Storm the Muna Triangle and find out what's going on over there. So I like the fact that everybody's having fun with the paranormal. I like the fact that everybody's talking about UFOs right now and aliens and everything else. But again... Please, don't actually storm Area 51. I don't want to see any of my listeners getting shot. Okay, before I get to the next story, let's make this a good spot to stop for an ad. So if you're listening to me, people that make the ads and put them onto my podcast, this next section is where the ad should go, not in the middle of one of my sentences like you seem to do on previous episodes. Here we go. Anybody that's listening... Up next is an ad. Be right back. Okay, we're back. Also, if you would like to advertise on Paranormal Almanac, please get in contact with us at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Let's talk about rates. I have thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of listeners. I know it's not millions like some podcasts, but I got to say, I'm happy with everything every one of my listeners they're the best listeners on the world so in the world on the world whatever you want to say so advertisers if you're listening and you want this kind of intensely cool audience this is the podcast for you up next as far as we know all of our stores are ghost free and this is from time magazine it says a supermarket responds to frozen isle haunting post They're saying that what sounds like something out of Ghostbusters, an employee at the Massachusetts Market Basket Grocery Store claimed to have spotted a Victorian-era specter haunting the frozen food aisle. The employee, Christiana Bush, who works in the store's bakery department, posted about the ghost sighting in a local private Facebook group. She said, this is going to sound really strange, but has anyone seen a ghost in the Wilmington Market Basket? Now, adding that that after she saw the woman... She looked to see if anyone else caught a glimpse of the apparition. When she looked back, the woman was gone. She said she looked kind of like melancholy and a little angry. So it was kind of creepy kind of sense, but it was something. Now she believes the woman was a ghost and asked the Facebook group whether anyone else had a paranormal experience in her store. If the rumors are true, it makes this market basket a lot more interesting, said one shopper. So again... People are talking about ghosts. They're talking about the paranormal. I don't care how they're talking about it. I'm just glad they are. Hopefully, someone can catch this Victorian woman on security camera. You'd think there'd be security camera footage of her. You know, market basket. Why don't you check uh, your security footage? Alrighty, up next, I'm not really sure it's paranormal news, but it's my, it's my podcast, so I wanted to throw it on here. How I Met Your Mother Easter Egg confirms that Marshall found the Loch Ness Monster. How I Met Your Mother had a brilliant Easter egg confirming that Marshall found the Loch Ness Monster. The nod to the creature was shown through a flash-forward scene in the sitcom's third season. Now, I know that that third season's forever ago. I also know the show's been off the air for a while. But, just in case you missed it, here's a breakdown of the scene. So, Marshall, that's Jason Segel... Uh, His obsession with the mysterious creatures and supernatural beings was confirmed in Season 1, but after Marshall and Lily got married in Season 2 finale, the duo went on a honeymoon to Scotland in order to look for Nessie. Now, uh, let's skip ahead. Here we go. Then we go to Season 3, Episode We're Not From Here, and it revealed that Marshall did indeed find the Loch Ness Monster as shown in future Marshall's office. There's a newspaper clipping hanging on the wall with the headline, NYC Lawyer Captures Nessie. So, uh, yeah, if you want to go back and watch How I Met Your Mother, apparently Future Marshall caught Nessie. And speaking of Nessie, up next in Paranormal News, Loch Ness Monster gets its own tartan from award-winning designers. And the article is called Ness to Impress. And I like that, so I thought I'd put it on here. The Loch Ness Monster now has its own tartan after design was lodged with the official Scottish Register of Tartans in Edinburgh. The Nessie tartan has been designed to be worn by four Loch Ness monster lovers all over the world that's terribly worded has been designed to be worn by four Loch Ness monster lovers all over the world that's terrible now it features different shades of blue for the monster and the Loch Ness as well as gray for ripples in the water and green for the surrounding hills and the glens the pattern was produced by the house of Edgar in Perth for award-winning Glasgow base the promotional warehouse Hey, promotional warehouse, if you're listening to this, I just gave you a huge ad, a huge shout out. Please send me my first kilt, and I would really, really like it, in the Loch Ness Monster. It's not really a monster. It's own tartan, the Nessie tartan. I think it'd be cool to have this. You know, it's pretty. I like it. I like the tartan. Uh, The designer, Mary McLeod of House of Edgar, who came up with several tartans previously, said, I love doing this one. The greens, blues, and greys represent the monster and the Highlands of Scotland and the weather. The lines in the tartan, the greys, represent the ripple in the water the monster would make. It's not a monster. So again, if you're listening, Mary McLeod or anybody from that uh, that store, I gave you guys a nice little shout out. The the Glasgow-based promotional warehouse. I would love one of your kilts in the in the Nessie tartan. I think it'd be fantastic. Alrighty, up next, this asteroid will not hit earth now i got a bunch of doomsday lover listeners that said hey man did you see this we're gonna get hit by this asteroid on september 9th well thankfully the 20 to 50 meter asteroid 2006 qv8 will not hit earth on september 9th there was a one in seven thousand chance which doesn't sound that fleeting to me but they say it is fleetingly small that the asteroid would impact Earth in two months, according to a European Space Agency and European South Observatory. But, follow-up observations have once again confirmed that none of the asteroids we know are at risk of impacting the Earth. So, listeners, thank you so much for sending me this, but, despite what a lot of crappy websites are saying, this asteroid is not going to hit us on September 9th, hopefully. So, sorry, you gotta keep listening to me past September 9th up next ufo alien abduction story commemorated by mississippi historical marker now the reason i wanted to add this one into this paranormal news is i just did a patron exclusive episode about pascagoula the ufo in pascagoula the abduction so it was a it happened in pascagoula in 1973 if you want to know more about it it's october 11 1973 if you want to know more about it well you're going to have to become a patron, because that is a patron-exclusive episode. But there is an update. It's commemorated by the Mississippi Historical Marker, on the spot where it happened, or supposedly happened, or maybe didn't happen. Who knows? Alrighty, that about does it for paranormal news. We've had nuclear energy since the 1940s, from nuclear bomb tests, to nuclear missile sites, to silos, to nuclear energy, and with them, all has come something else. UFO activity that's right since the beginning it seems that UFOs have had an intense interest in us taking the next step for energy and destruction now around the world governments have seemingly been powerless to stop UFOs from entering restricted airspace and even more so for this episode let's start at the very beginning of nuclear testing the first test sites of Los Alamos and Sandia in New Mexico A declassified FBI document from 1950 mentions quote-unquote flying saucers measuring almost 50 feet in diameter near the Los Alamos labs. Now, it happened on December 5th, 1948. Two separate plane crews reported having seen quote, a green ball of fire heading west to east. Now, let me pause right here. That declassified FBI document, now it specifically mentions flying saucers from this next point on i'm not really going to be talking about flying saucers so much but definitely ufos and their green balls of fire i wanted to put that distinction in there because that fbi document was very specific flying saucers not green balls of fire none of that and i think it adds some weight to this topic that i'm going to be talking about in a minute because this declassified fbi document was recently declassified They kept it classified way longer than a lot of the ones that don't have specific details in them, like the classified information. We all know about Los Alamos. We all know that there were nuclear silos there and bombs, missiles, whatever you want to call them. So there was no real reason to keep it classified except for the mention of flying saucers. Okay, with that being said, uh, let me rewind a little bit. December 5th, 1948. Two separate plane crews reported having seen a, quote, green ball of fire heading west to east. Now, in one of these instances, the fireball flew right towards one of the planes itself, and it forced the pilot to swerve out of the way. Now, this was a military pilot, an experienced military pilot, who went out because of that other report. He went out towards the fireball, but not in its way. And this fireball flew right towards him. Now, that pilot said, quote, Take a softball and paint it with some kind of fluorescent paint that will glow a bright green in the dark. Then, have someone take that ball out about 100 feet in front of you and about 10 feet above you. Have him throw the ball right at your face as hard as he can throw it. That's what a green fireball looks like. So, it's definitely an odd UFO description. And many skeptics say that it's just a meteorite. but. Scientists, including meteor expert Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, who plotted meteor trajectories for this, well, he plotted the thing's flight path, and when they scoured the area, they found nothing. No meteor fragments, no craters, no evidence of fire. But more on that debunking in a... Well, I'll tell them a little bit more. So, this guy had a record of finding every meteor. They gave him the trajectory... Boom, he could find it on the ground. I guess the meteorite because it hit the ground. He found every meteorite that he was looking for until he started trying to figure out the trajectory of these green fireballs and just couldn't find them on the ground at all. Okay, now more debunking on that meteorite theory in about 15 seconds or so. So these things become so commonplace, they even had a team to monitor them at the facility. And this team reported them a lot including sightings on December 6th, 7th, 8th, 11th, 13th, 14th, 20th, and 28th. This team that was formed just for these green fireballs had sightings on all of those dates, and here's what the team concluded from observing them repeatedly. The balls of fire descended from the heavens at a 45-degree angle, then abruptly leveled off into a gravity-defying horizontal flight path, and... As La Paz would note in a letter to the district commanding officer of the United Air Force Office of Special Investigations, quote, None of the green fireballs has a train of sparks or a cloud or a dust cloud. One, the trajectory was too flat. Two, the color was too green. And three, he couldn't locate any fragments, even though he had found the spots where they should have hit the earth if they were meteorites. Again, this is an independent scientist. He was not being paid per meteorite found. He was independently paid to track these and locate them, and he just couldn't. Then, in the summer of 1949, Project Twinkle was created, which is one of the best names for a project from the military ever. Now, Project Twinkle was called for establishing three synethodolite Synethodolite stations near White Sands, New Mexico. Three what? Well, a cinethodolite is similar to a 35mm movie camera, except when you take a photograph of an object, you also get a photograph of three dials that show the time the photo was taken, the azimuth angle, and the elevation angle of the camera. Now, if two or more cameras photograph the same object, It's possible to obtain a very accurate measurement of the photographed object's altitude, speed, and size. When I mean very accurate, I mean precise. Here's the problem. Project Twinkle just sucked. Why? Well, only one camera was available, and nothing was photographed. Because the camera was continually being forced to move from place to place if several reports came from a certain area the camera crew would load up the gear load up the equipment move to that area set it up and they never got there in time to shoot anything so even though project twinkle was shut down and nothing was ever photographed it did lead to one interesting thing and that interesting thing is a follow-up report in 1952 february of 1952 from the u.s air force directorate of intelligence They said, The Scientific Advisory Secretariat has suggested that this project not be declassified for a variety of reasons, chief among which is that no scientific explanation for any of the fireballs and other phenomena was revealed by the report, and that some reputable scientists still think that the observed phenomena are man-made. Now, when they say man-made, they don't mean... Obviously, it's Steve down the street. Obviously, it's the Russians. Obviously, the Chinese. They're saying these are not meteorites. These are not natural phenomena. Not swamp gas. Not, you know, Venus being reflected by the sun's light at a certain angle on the desert sky. None of that. These are man-made objects. These are physical objects. Whatever these green fireballs are, they're real. And they don't know who made them. Now even Time Magazine ran a story about them in November 51, 1951 that is, called Great Balls of Fire. So people were talking about them and despite Project Twinkle and it being classified forever, the word was out and people knew about them. And I'm talking about everybody, civilians, people driving their cars, people on ranches, farmers, everybody in the area were spotting these things. Edward J. Ruppelt, who was director of the USAF Project Blue Book UFO study, stated that he visited Los Alamos National Laboratory in early 1952. Now, he spoke to several scientists and technicians there, all of whom had experienced these weird green fireball sightings. The scientists speculated that they were extraterrestrial probes, quote, projected into our atmosphere from a spaceship hovering several hundred miles above the Earth. Now, Rupelt commented two years ago, I would have been amazed to hear a group of reputable scientists making a startling statement like this. Now, however, I took it as a matter of course, I'd heard the same type of statement many times before from equally qualified groups, and that is a huge statement. Sure people weren't going to the news, the military weren't going to the newspapers and saying, here's everything we know. but. When asked about it by an official US US Air Force study like Project Blue Book, they were open and they were honest. La Paz talked about them a lot. In fact, in January of 1953, he was quoted in the newspaper article saying that the green fireballs were artificial devices and might be a Soviet missile scouting the US and other parts of the world. Now you have to remember La Paz, not military. He was hired by the military, but he was not military, so he kind of talked. And when he talked, he thought they have to be Soviet missile scouting the U.S. and other parts of the world. Now, according to Ruppelt, the green fireballs reappeared, reappeared in September of 1954. One of them was the size of a full moon in the sky, and it was seen streaking southeast across Colorado. It lit up Denver and into northern New Mexico. Now, this one was actually seen by thousands of people at a football stadium in Santa Fe. La Paz was called back in to investigate, but told a reporter he did not expect to find anything. And then from April 3rd to April 9th in 1955, five green fireballs were reported in New Mexico and two in Northern California. At least three were reported within minutes of one another, and that was the mid-morning of April 5th. Now, Lopez stated, This is a record. I'm sure the yellow-green fireballs aren't ordinary meteorite falls. I've been observing the sky since 1914, and I've never seen any meteoritic fireballs like them. Now, another theory was, and I have to say, this was a theory that when I started doing all this research, I, I started having the same feeling, this same theory, I really agreed with it, too. This is my leading theory, is that the atomic testing itself was causing these green fireballs. Now, it makes sense. These things started appearing when atomic testing started. So it only seems logical that maybe, just maybe, the tests themselves caused them. Now, this theory became known as the Fallout Theory, and the more and more I looked into it, it's a very widespread theory, but, well, I'll get into that. So it's, it's called the Fallout Theory. Now, the most well-known, widely seen, and most cited occurrence is known as the Buster Series of Atomic Tests on November 1st and 5th in 1950, 1951. These were huge atomic tests. In fact, chances are, if you've seen old videos of atomic tests in the desert and people standing there watching it like idiots, that's these tests. So this test, these tests were accompanied by dozens of green fireball sightings in states affected by the fallout. And even the New York Times carried a story on November 9th, saying Southwest seven fireballs in 11 days called, quote, without parallel in history. So the New York Times even got in on this. Dr. LaPaz was again widely quoted saying, there has never been a rate of meteorite fall in the history That has been one-fifth as high as the present fall if that rate should continue i would suspect the phenomena is not natural they don't behave like ordinary meteorites at all now back to that fallout theory though that as the fallout began like the fallout clouds started happening they excited maybe just maybe the theory says they excited something in the atmosphere and it created almost like a greenish ball lightning. So anyhow, the initial green fireballs were reported in Arizona and New Mexico as the fallout clouds left Nevada, but as the clouds spread out and drifted further east, south, and north, green fireball sightings then followed in Texas, northern New Mexico, Iowa, Kansas, Indiana, Michigan, and New York. Portions of the fallout also drifted west into Los Angeles on November 7th, followed the next day, by a green fireball sighting there. So it's a very good theory. Some researchers imply that the radioactivity itself was producing the green fireballs possibly as an electrostatic effect. But Dr. LaPaz, he didn't think so. He said that the green fireballs move too regularly and have been sighted earlier before the testings have actually started. And on a number of occasions at at Los Alamos and Sandia Atomic Labs, no measurable radiation was released, as well as at the Killeen Basin, Texas, where the weapons were just simply stored. So, just based on the facts alone, where they were sighted, the electrostatic theory just doesn't add up. And this is what Dr. LaPaz thought at the time. I kind of agree. Now, a researcher into this very theory, this fallout theory, said, we can make one statement of fact. The fireball sightings, green or otherwise, occurred in areas that received radioactive debris from Operation Buster. Was this just a coincidence or a planned occurrence? We simply don't know. So all we can do is continue to collect data and see if some overwhelmingly convincing pattern emerges. Here's what that pattern emerged, what that data told them. Overwhelmingly, they did not coincide with bomb tests, with the nuclear tests, with the atomic tests. It did not coincide. Now the evidence pointed to the fireballs being real, being artificial, and those responsible having some sort of agenda. So I guess, frankly, that theory just doesn't quite pan out because of where and when the fireballs were seen. But like I said, it was a really interesting theory and I myself before I even knew it was a theory, started thinking, oh, well then, yeah, it's just this nuclear test. We just started doing something weird with atomic weapons. We start seeing something weird as a result. Scientifically speaking, A plus B equals C, but in this case, it didn't. The evidence pointed to the fireballs being real, being artificial, and what they mean by artificial, not weather-related, not meteorites, not caused by the atomic testing, but something... I was going to say man-made, but that's not correct. Correct. That's not right. Something made. Very interesting story. I like both theories. I'm, I am was so glad when the Fallout theory didn't pan out because then I'm just talking about some natural thing or some man-made atomic test thing, and it didn't turn out to be that. So from there, let's go to the 1960s to a more classic UFO story. For this one, we go to Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. Now, this was a storage site for nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, when I say storage site, I don't mean they just locked them up. I mean, these missiles were in silos ready to be launched. Now, the year 1967, March 16th, 1967 to be exact. That's the date when former Air Force Captain Robert Salas said 10 of those missiles became inoperative At the same time, base security reported seeing a glowing red object. This glowing red object was about 30 feet in diameter and it was hovering over the facility. This was not a green fireball. This was something red, something glowing, and it hovered directly over the facility. Now, Salas, who commanded ICBMs as a launch officer and later worked in the aerospace industry and at the Federal Aviation Administration, he told CNN way later on, the missiles began going into what is called a no-go situation, or unlaunchable. He said a large, saucer-shaped craft at a very close distance was reported to him at the same time as numerous nuclear missile warheads were deactivated. Salas and his crew were told to keep quiet. He reported, quote, They wanted us to sign papers saying we'd never talk about this and swear we wouldn't even talk to our wives or our wives or any of the other airmen on the base. Absolutely nobody. If we went public with this while still in the service, I would have been in Leavenworth prison, breaking stones into little pebbles. So this was very serious. And again, this was not just a red orb. A saucer-shaped craft was very close distance, and as soon as they spotted it, all 10 ICBMs went into a no-go or unlaunchable situation. Now, here's a report on that same instance from the first lieutenant. Now, fun fact, I hate spelling the word lieutenant, and I guarantee I can't spell it right without autocorrect. So, anyhow, lieutenant absolutely hates spelling it. But here's what happened when he saw it. It was first lieutenant Robert C. Jamison, and he said that he assisted in a restart of an entire flight of 10-Minute Men ICBMs, which had mysteriously completely shut down after a UFO was sighted in their vicinity by Air Force Security Police. Jameson said that while his and other teams were ordered to remain at Malmstrom until all UFO reports from the field had ceased, he stated further that his team received special briefing prior to being dispatched, during which it was directed to immediately report any UFOs sighted while traveling to Or from the missile field because you have to remember these missile fields are kind of out alone. They're out in the boondocks So command wanted them to keep an eye out for UFOs while they're traveling to or from the missile field Now in the event that a UFO appeared at one of the missile silos during the restart procedure The team was directed to enter the silos personnel hatch and remain underground until the UFO had left the vicinity According to Jamison, the air police guard who was accompanying the team was to remain outside and relay information about the UFO to the base command post. Jameson's own team restarted three or four missiles, but did not observe any unusual aerial activity. Now, Jameson went on to say that while he was at the missile maintenance hangar, he overheard radio communications at the temporary command post about another UFO that had been sighted on the ground in a canyon near the nearby town of Belt. Now, he states he recalls hearing that a top commander told them, I've seen a UFO. Jameson also said that about two weeks after the ICBMs and the UFO sightings, his team responded to another partial shutdown during the day involving four or five of the ICBMs. Prior to being dispatched, Jameson's team received a report That the missile failures had occurred immediately after a UFO was sighted over the flight's launch control facility. And then after this one was successfully restarted, the UFO had left. Now he talked to the guards. They were all visibly shaken by being told to stay outside and keep an eye on these UFOs. So this is incredible. There are multiple people who were at Malmstrom Air Force Base, separate from each other. all have the same stories on the same dates. Not only that, this was not a regular occurrence for these Minutemen ICBMs to just shut down and become unlaunchable. Um, Quite on the contrary, these things were always in ready-to-go status. Maybe they would have one that they'd have to take offline and reset or restart or whatever they call it, but never having a full flight, all of them, go offline at the same time, and especially when a UFO was sighted overhead every time. And it wasn't just at Malmstrom either, this was happening all over the world. Now, the problem here is, details aren't as precise as this case. I could find vague reports from declassified Soviet Ministry of Defense documents that confirm this happened around their nuclear silos too, around the same time. Unfortunately, the Freedom of Information Act for each country is very different, And for the soviet union almost non-existent now these next reports are from nicap and that's the national investigations committee on aerial phenomena basically they look for ufos they report ufos now on may 10th 1952 four employees of the dupont company employed at savannah river plant saw quote eight disc-shaped objects approach the ellington south carolina nuclear plant these objects varied from a yellow to golden color, moved south to north at a high rate of speed. The eight UFOs approached the area at such low altitude, they had to rise to pass over some small, some tall tanks in the area. And when they say tanks, they don't mean like military tanks, they mean like water tanks. Now these noiseless UFOs, weaved from left to right, moved from side to side as they departed at a 90 degree angle. On July 5th, 1952, Four Florida pilots reported a flying saucer hovering above the Hanford Atomic Works, which is a scientific scientific installation at Richlands, Washington. Captain John Baldwin, Captain George Robertson, and Pilots D. Shanbell and Stephen Summers stated that the UFO was round and flat. After hovering over the atomic plant, it gained speed, reversed its course, and disappeared quickly. Two yellow globes of fiery appearance were reported over the Hanford plant seven days later. And NICAP even has a report on the Los Alamos base. April 17, 1950. More than 15 people at the, energy, at the Atomic Energy Project at Los Alamos, New Mexico reported that they saw a UFO on the eastern horizon. One of the observers, a scientist from the University of California Personnel Division, watched one of the three objects through a telescope and said that it looked flat, metallic, and was roughly circular and about nine feet in diameter. The UFO appeared to be two thousand feet high and moved, quote, faster than any known conventional aircraft. It was seen for about twenty minutes. Up next, june twenty first, nineteen fifty two. Now this one is about prohibited airspace at Oak Ridge Laboratory in Tennessee at ten fifty eight PM. The UFO was observed by ground observer corps volunteers and was also detected by radar. So they have it on radar and they have eyes on the object. The UFO was pursued by an F-47 aircraft on combat patrol from a 10,000 to 27,000 foot altitude. So this thing chased it for a while and chased it going up, not going down. During the aerial dogfight, the UFO attempted to ram the F-47 on several several occasions before leaving the area. Now let's move to October 1965 when an aerial photography vision was flying with pilot H.T. Mayhew near the Perth Church Lake Norman crossing. Their plane was flying at thousand feet as they circled the lake near the Maguire nuclear station, when they noticed three bright objects to their right. Now, pilot Mayhew gave his plane full throttle and they rose barely high enough to escape the UFOs, which were flying in a formation 100 feet below them. They, uh, they managed to take one photograph of three circular UFOs above Lake Norman in North Carolina. Basically, it's in North Carolina. They took a photo. I couldn't find this photo. So take that one with a huge grain of salt. Because they talk about this photo so clearly on NICAP. Yet, where the hell are the photos? I would love to see these photos. In the late summer of 1968 at 2 a.m., a married couple reported seeing a dome-topped UFO with, quote, windows and odd-colored lights, yellow, blue, and red fixed together, flying near their Lake Norman home. The UFO was about two or three car lengths wide and made a soft humming noise. A metal rod came from the bottom edge of the UFO as it moved down near the power lines, almost touching the wires as it followed the power lines. The eyewitnesses ran the rest of the way home, were badly frightened by the experience. Apparently they lived near enough to a nuclear plant that this one was added to that list as well. Then we got to July or possibly August of 1972 at 9.30 p.m. Businessman Robert P. Sarton, who lives near the Lake Norman Airport and Duke Power Plant, spotted a UFO. He said the UFO came when he heard, his attention came to the UFO when he heard children fishing from a nearby pier who were shouting about an object in the sky. Four other people became eyewitnesses to the UFO, which was seen about four miles east of the Marshall Steam plant near Terrell. So another nuclear plant, more UFOs. The UFO appeared to be the size of a basketball court and had a thickness one half its width. The object looked like, quote, one saucer inverted on top another and had a row of flashing windows through its middle. It had red, white, and yellow lighted windows and hovered in the area overhead for about 10 minutes before it flew sideways then moved up and away at unbelievable speeds as it disappeared into the sky. This next one from March 1975, Lexington, South Carolina. Mr. and Mrs. Jim Richardson were driving near Lake Murray Hydroelectric Plant in the Saluda Dam when a brilliant spotlight came on and illuminated the interior of the car. They noticed the UFO looked like, quote, two pie pans put together and had a dome on top. Now, this UFO flew about 40 to 50 feet above their car, had red and blue lights on its ends, and its dome was, quote, brilliant white. The bottom of the UFO was octagonal in shape or like a stop sign. The Lake Murray area has been the scene of many UFO encounters over the years. Thank you, NICAP. If you guys haven't figured this out yet, I'm giving as many examples as possible for a very good reason. It seems that there's quite a few listeners, not quite a few, there's a few listeners Who say I don't give any examples? I talk about something astounding or amazing and then don't give any examples. What the hell they're talking about, I don't know. I always try to give examples, but here you go, guys. Here is a bunch of examples. Want another one? How about this? October 27th, 1975, a UFO was reported by Staff Sergeant Danny K. Lewis near the Loring Air Force Base in Maine. The UFO began to circle the nuclear weapons storage area within 300 yards of the facility. Finally, it hovered 100 feet above the ground. The base went on high alert and radar tracked the UFO for over 40 minutes. November 22, 1975, pilot Frank Allman Jr. and his friend were flying in a private plane near Savannah, Georgia nuclear plant. They saw a bright white UFO maneuvering the area for four or five minutes. It made a slight wobble, then a hard turn before it flew away. Jacksonville Control Center personnel at Jacksonville, Florida, confirmed that these confirmed three UFO sightings, either by radar or visuals by pilots at the site. So again, this one has an experienced pilot. It has radar control. It has radar and other visual sightings at the exact same time all around the Georgia nuclear plant. Uh, March 1978. Several people describe seeing two, quote, milky white UFOs flying side by side at treetop level at the McGuire Nuclear Station near Triangle, North Carolina. Triangle, North Carolina? Sure. April 24th, 1980, 9 p.m., another UFO from Lake Norman area. Two uh, carpenters, while working on the, the roof of a house, observed a bright yellow UFO that rose up vertically from Lake Norman, made a loop. And then disappeared while moving rapidly away. Hi Stitch how you doing pal? There you go. Apparently it's some nuclear site around there as well. And uh, let's let's jump in. I want what the point of this I was trying to make. so the point I was trying to make with all of these sightings were that these things have been sighted for years a lot around nuclear sites. from the 50s, I'm up to 1983 when Mr. and Mrs. Wayne Rupi of Gaffney, South Carolina. Uh, heard a siren-like sound, something like taking off. They looked out their house windows in time to see a glowing oval UFO about 20 feet above their neighbor's house. It was about the size of a Winnebago trailer, two beams of light on the bottom of it, and it flew off in the direction of the Cherokee nuclear station. It was seen for about five minutes and estimated to be about 20 feet long and 8 to 10 feet high. There is a whole lot of them in New York. And I mean, a lot of them. July 24th, 1984, New York over a nuclear plant. Now this, this, uh, this report actually says the plant causes alerts and electrical failure when the UFO was directly overhead. July 12th, 1984, Hudson Valley, New York. Uh, July 19th, 1984, Pound Ridge, New York. This one was a boomerang shaped object flying over Pound Ridge going towards that uh, nuclear plant. July 24th, 1984, Indian power plant in New York. They just keep going. In New York in the 80s, there was a it was a hotbed of UFO activity around their nuclear plants. All right, from there, let's talk about one specific instance. UFO investigator Philip J. Inmbrojno, in Bragno, sorry. Of the Dr. J. Allen Hynek, you know that guy's name, Center for UFO Studies in Chicago interviewed six security guards who saw a UFO. Now this UFO was the size of a, was huge in size, diamond shaped, approximately 450 feet in length. It was first white, then blue, then red, then green. It just basically rotated in colors. Now local police in Peekskill received numerous UFO sightings during that same evening, including Sergeant Carl Hoffman, who said the UFO included a dozen white lights in V formation. Now, these V formation lights slowly moved towards the power plant, the nuclear power plant, at Indian Point. So then he went over and talked to some of the security guards at the Indian Point nuclear plant in Peekskill. And now these guys were issued shotguns, and they were told, shoot at the UFO. And it was also requested that an armed helicopter come to shoot down the UFO, but before that command was officially given, the UFO moved away and left the area. Now, one of the guys that worked at the plant said, I can neither confirm nor deny that the guards fired upon it, but they did what was necessary to protect the plant. Of all the guards that he interviewed, all of them would say they saw something that they couldn't talk about, but none of them would admit that they actually fired at it with a shotgun from the ground. And finally, let's go back to 1975, just outside of Winnipeg. There's a town called Carmen, C-A-R-M-A-N, in Manitoba that had almost nightly sightings. Now, these objects became known as Charlie Red Star because of the intense red glowing fireball and the plasma surrounding it. If you were paying attention to earlier in the podcast, you would remember that there was a UFO, a full-on flying saucer silver-shaped disced object inside the red glowing fireball over there. So this one already piqued my interest because it was basically described the exact same way, but it had almost nightly sightings. When a Winnipeg TV station captured the object on film jumping 5,000 feet into the air, now, like I said, described as a red fireball, it's also described by the TV station as sometimes stationary, sometimes speeding off rapidly, and similar fireballs were also dubbed Charlie's friends, and Charlie's cousins. Now, this UFO, or these UFOs, I should say, were seen by hundreds of witnesses live, not to mention all the people that watched it on that Winnipeg TV station. Now, this included members of police force, television crews, everybody, farmers, regular people, businessmen, anybody. People were seeing these things everywhere over several months throughout 1975 and 1976. Now, you might be saying right now, hey, Kurt, I'm an expert on Manitoba. What are you talking about? This has nothing to do with the nuclear site, but bear with me, expert on Manitoba. All righty, February 1975, north of Lundar, Manitoba, a farmer walking to his barn saw a basketball-sized light swoop over him. As he gazed up, he felt as if hot plastic was poured over his face. March 27th, 1975, near Graysville, Manitoba, 2 a.m., a young girl wakes up in a shrill wakes up to a shrill siren-like pulsating sound, and an earthquake-like tremble. She said she saw a red ball of light as bright as the sun zipping southwards. April 10, 1975, near Carmen, Manitoba, the Demart Demart couple were walking to their private airfield when they saw a large red, slow-moving light hovering at the tree line. They saw a disc-shaped object with a dome attached in the red light. It then turned direction and disappeared after five minutes. Uh, Starting May 7th of that same year, 1975, the same couple saw the object every night for several months. In the summer, other people came to the airfield to see that UFO because these people were talking about it. They're like, hey, every night we're seeing this UFO in a red light. You guys should come over and take a look at it. So people were coming over and going, holy shit. Well, actually, probably... Holy shit, eh? That's a UFO, right where he said it would. Let's go get some Tim Hortons, eh? That's the only Canadian accent I'm doing for you guys. Uh, May 9th, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police constable was called to their farm to see the UFO, that same farm. He reported that the object was approximately 1,000 feet in altitude. He described it as an oval red light surrounded with an X-shaped white halo. When he followed it in his car which that's just messed up. He's a Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He should have been following it on his horse, not in his car. So I don't like that guy already. But anyhow, he said it appeared to remain stationary for about two to three minutes and then started moving away. The object behaved rather similarly to an airplane descending into Winnipeg, Winnipeg, but this was no airplane. June 4th, 1975, north of St. Cloud, Manitoba, a farmer saw a flying saucer with two domes top to bottom made from a glass-like material. The top of the craft was silver in color and the bottom was described as a fish-like milky white. Again, the second time milky white was used to describe one of these things. He attempted to leave the area, but his truck stopped. It wouldn't start again. Then suddenly, the sighting stopped. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me let me finish that story first before I continue on. Oh my God, I, I spoiled what happened. Um. So his truck just stopped. He's desperately trying to start his truck. He's freaking out, wondering what's going on. The UFO takes off. The truck starts up right again and has never, and uh, probably not never, but he said, and it never gave him problems since. I'm sure he doesn't have that same truck. It was 1975, but you know what I'm saying? He never had the electrical problems he had that night when the UFO was overhead. Okay, now I spoiled it, I'm sorry. Then suddenly, the sighting stopped and no one has seen anything since. Here's the weird thing. It's also, Manitoba is also the site of Whiteshell Laboratories, originally known as the Whiteshell Nuclear Research Establishment. It was originally built as a home for the experimental... WR-1 reactor but over time came to host a variety of experimental systems including a slowpoke reactor which you don't need to know any of these reactors are they're nuclear reactors that's all you need to know watch Chernobyl they're bad news and the underground research laboratory to study nuclear waste disposal here's the other odd thing about that employment at these facilities and experiments and everything done at these facilities peaked in the mid-1970s, 1975 and 1976 to be exact. Now, employment was so huge, they had about 1,300 people working at these bases, at these facilities. During the 1980s, the experiments began to wind down. And then in 2003, the decision was made to close the site completely. So just as these experiments, these reactors, these nuclear waste studies were being done At this plant, at this white shell laboratory or white shell nuclear research establishment, tons of UFO sightings, red glowing orb UFOs, milky white UFOs, silver flying saucers for no better description as a silver flying saucer were all seen in Manitoba, and then boom, never again. Now, like I said, I could find reports from all over the world. Wherever nuclear plants or missile silos were, Including several unidentified flying objects that have been spotted over nuclear power plants in France and Belgium in 2015. So it's still happening to this day, or relatively to this day. I will say, depending on where you get your information, some sites have said the media has reported that the recent ones, the 2015 sightings and and later, are likely drones. Here's the problem in that one from France specifically, the French government still doesn't know who they belong to, nor do they correspond with any known drone from any government or any source at all. And a director of one of the nuclear power plants in France said they had a, new, they had a UFO over it. He says whatever flew over his plant in October of 2014 was not a drone. This thing was a UFO. It didn't look like a drone. It looked like a classic UFO. Then on January 3rd, 2015, a nuclear power plant in Nogent sur seine that's that's southeast of Paris, and I'm sure I nailed that one, because, you know, I never took French in my life, but how hard could it be? Uh, They reported that two security guards saw, quote, two flying objects that did not match a drone or any known man-made object. Whatever's happening with UFOs and nuclear sites, this is just the beginning of reported incidents. I whittled them down. I kind of, I wanted to go through the years, decade after decade through the years, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I kind of skipped 90s, but I jumped back up to 2015, 2014 and 2015. So throughout every decade, and yes, there were some from the 90s as well. There were reports of credible witnesses seeing UFOs near nuclear silos, power plants, ICBM, military plants, everything that had to do with nuclear power. So whatever's happening with UFOs and nuclear sites, it's just the beginning. I'm sure I'm gonna have another episode about this with even more examples. And I gotta say, I don't know why. I don't know what to think. Why are they getting energy from the nuclear plants? Are they monitoring us to make sure we don't blow ourselves up? That would seem to be the case in quite a few times because, like I said, ICBMs were shut down, whole fleets of them. These things weren't about to be launched or anything like that, but that is terrifying to think they can just fly over and shut down our... Maybe it's not terrifying. Maybe it's a good thing that they have the power to fly over and just shut down our ICBMs. Again, supposedly, it was done in Russia as well, in the Soviet Union back then, As well, but I can't find Really good detailed stories with specifics on there to say a hundred percent. Yes Their missiles were shut down when a ufo flew overhead. I can find a lot of sites That have no information. No dates No people no names. No anything really no details at all really, but they say during the cold war Soviet Union missile silos were shut down when a UFO flew overhead. First, the Russians thought that the Americans were about to attack, but then, you know, that kind of bullshit without any specific details. Many servicemen at the Russian site said they saw a UFO flying directly overhead. No, there was not a specific person named or a specific date that I can see if I could find any other information that can corroborate that UFO sighting. They one at Malmstrom, there was a lot of people named. There were specific dates, even. There were newspaper stories and magazine stories regarding it. There was an independent contractor who loved to talk about it. La Paz loved to talk about shit. So it has specifics, and that's what I go for every time. I go for specifics. Just to give you guys a little teaser, the, the next week's episode or the next episode, I'll put it that way, because who knows when I'm going to get it out. Maybe I'll get it out this week as well. It all depends on how much free time I get to actually release the next episode. I would like to get it out before Friday. I'm not guaranteeing that. But the next episode is about haunted places in Russia. And at first, I thought I found the mother load of all haunted locations. But unfortunately, with just a little bit of investigation, as always, I managed to debunk a ton. But I'll talk about that on the next episode. So let's get back to this for a second. Why do you think UFOs are over nuclear plants and nuclear silos and all these atomic tests? Are they getting energy from them? Like I said, are they monitoring us? Why, why do you think they're there? Do you think the green fireballs were just that, green fireballs from that uh, fallout theory? It didn't pan out. Experts say it doesn't correlate. But what do you think? Do you think it is just some weird anomaly offshoot of the atomic tests? Again, the experts don't seem to think so, but it's a possibility. I can't say no. I really can't. But what do you guys think? Do you think if the UFOs came down right now, they could just shut down all ICBM missile silos, whatever you want to call them, around the world, and we wouldn't have to worry about nuclear war ever again? If that's the case, I really hope the UFOs are listening to this podcast right now, Please do that. Please stop us from destroying ourselves. That would be fantastic. Well, I really hope you guys like this one. I really like this one. I love the Malmstrom case and I love the Manitoba case because I had never heard about the Charlie Red Star before. And I thought it was fantastic when I started investigating it and couldn't debunk it. I thought it was great. So that about does it for this episode. Please, if you can, make sure you like and subscribe on whatever pod, podcast platform you listen to this at. Make sure you tell your friends. That really gets the help out there, uh, gets the word out there. Rate and review it on iTunes if anybody even still uses iTunes anymore. But if you do, please rate and review this one. I can always use it. Rate and review this one on Facebook. Get, just help me get the word out. Any little bit that you guys think, well, what? who cares what I do? Trust me. It helps you guys sharing the stupid photos and stuff that I put on, uh, on the Facebook and Instagram that gets the word out. Any little thing that you guys can do to help get the word out. I greatly appreciate it. I cannot thank you guys enough. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Savig. This has been another edition of paranormal almanac. Hey, fuck it. Oh, fuck you.